Welcome to this episode of Catchy Knowledge, where we want more than just fishing knowledge, we want catchy knowledge. Today we get to catch some knowledge from the greatest jig fisherman of all time, in my opinion. Denny Brower is an icon in the bass fishing world, and I can't believe I was able to talk with him. He's going to share some really good stuff that you're not going to want to miss. We'll talk about how we got started, and about some more of his favorite baits, and about some of his favorite memories, and more. You're not going to want to miss this interview. Before we get started, I'd like to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Concordia Schools of Omaha. Concordia is located in Omaha, Nebraska, and partners with homes to grow faith-secure, world-ready kingdom leaders. The school offers academic excellence in a faith-filled community for students in grades K-12. If you'd like more information about Concordia, visit concordiaomaha.org or call 402-445-4000. That's 402-445-4000. If you or someone near Omaha, Nebraska is looking for a good school, check them out. All right, time to get to it. Today I'd like to welcome the Mr. Denny Brower to this episode of Catchy Knowledge. Denny is literally the greatest jig fisherman to ever walk the planet, in my opinion. Welcome, Denny. I appreciate that, Micah. How and where did you start fishing? Oh, it was just kind of a neighborhood thing to do when I grew up. Uh, My dad passed away when I was four, and so we moved to a small town, and we lived on the edge of the town. And there was a small stream down there that had some fish in it, and a bunch of the neighborhood kids and I, we'd go down there and try to catch whatever we could catch, whether it was catfish or sunfish or whatever. So that's kind of how I got started. And then when I got a little bit older, we'd ride our bicycles out to some farm ponds. And that's where I got started fishing for bass was on the farm ponds and sand pits and areas like that. So I heard you grew up in Seward. Grew up in Seward, Nebraska, you bet. And, uh, you know, it's not uh, an area close to a lot of water, so there weren't a lot of options. Had the little old Plum Creek where we would fish and uh, some of them farm ponds. And then as I got older and could uh, drive, I started to fish the Salt Valley chain of lakes, which back then most of them were fairly new and the fishing was excellent on them. What was fishing like when you were younger? Any new lakes are normally very, very good fisheries. And when those lakes were new, they just had a lot of fish in them because they had a lot of cover. There was a lot of flooded trees. There's a lot of opportunities for the fish to uh, spawn and have cover and recruit. It just ended up for several years there. The fishing was awesome. It was really a lot simpler because there weren't a lot of people fishing for them. So they weren't too conditioned to lures. So you could take a plastic worm or a spinnerbait, which were our main baits back then. And that's when we started jig fishing a little bit too. But that was really all you needed to go out there and go fishing. Did jigs start out with silicone skirts or did they start out with like the bucktail hair? They actually started out with bucktail, just like you said, and kind of started out in California. The first flipping jigs I heard of, that's where they come from. They were made out of bucktail. And then you start to see the living rubber being used. Then finally, uh, silicone come out. And, you know, you had more options color-wise when the silicone skirts were developed. Yeah. When would you say they started making the silicone skirts? 
Uh, probably around around 1990 when it really became prevalent. You still saw a mixture of live rubber in the transition to silicone because it was cheaper. You had more color options. Yeah, I bet so. Where do you usually fish and what are you looking to catch? Well, I'm usually fishing right here on Lake Amistad. Now that I'm retired, I don't travel all over the country anymore. I fish here the majority of the time, and I'm, I'm out to catch big bass. That's why I moved here, and this lake's got a lot of fish over 10 pounds. I've actually caught one over 15, and I enjoy fishing for them great big fish. I do take a few trips to Mexico each year and fish some of the lakes down there with Ron Speed Adventures. And, of course, in Texas, we've got so many great lakes, Lake Falcon, O.H. Ivy, Sam Rayburn, Toledo Bend. So I've got a lot of options without traveling too far. I'm pretty sure they just had the classic on Ray Roberts this year. I'm pretty sure that's in Texas, right? It's in Texas. It's uh, only about an hour from Dallas. And I've actually fished Ray Roberts several times. It's a good lake, got a lot of timber in it. It's an enjoyable place to fish. I hear Lake Amistad's a pretty different place. I read it's so big that the fish will spawn at different times and one ends shallower and one's deeper. It's the most different lake I've probably ever fished because it doesn't really get a thermocline. It's real deep. It's a couple hundred feet deep and it's got a lot of springs that come into it. Extremely clear in most areas and I've actually seen fish spawn over 25 feet deep in this lake. So you'll have some spawn shallow, but really the majority of the big fish will spawn out deeper and you don't even know they're spawning. And because it's in a warmer climate, you'll have several different months that they'll spawn, not just one month. You know, some areas where the water is cold, as soon as it gets to a certain temperature degree, they're going to have a big wave of fish come in and spawn. Here, that kind of takes place over several months. Yeah. How did your professional fishing career start? Oh, boy. It was, uh, it was a hobby. It's something I just enjoyed doing. And then I had a guy at work one day show me a, a Bassmaster magazine about tournament fishing. And I thought it'd be kind of cool if we started a bass club and started fishing some tournaments in Seward. So I got some guys together that I knew liked the bass fish, and we formed the Blue Valley Bass Club, which is still in existence even to today. So it's been around for a lot, a lot of years. Wow. And started to fish bass club tournaments, and we qualified to send a team to the Nebraska State Tournament and ended up winning the state tournament. And then a couple of years later, won the state tournament again. And I thought, you know, maybe I ought to try this at a higher level. So one of the national Bassmasters tournaments was coming to Lake of the Ozarks, which was only a six-hour drive really from Nebraska. So I entered it, went down, and I think I finished 20th in that first event. Well, won me $1,000 and uh, thought, boy, this is a good deal. That was in April of 1980. And so I fished a few more the next year. And before I knew it, I was uh, doing it for a living. It just kind of gradually happened. and It probably took three or four years before I made the transition to a full-time bass fisherman. Did you grow up thinking that's what you wanted to do? Or was it not really a thing? It was nothing that I really planned on doing. I had no idea that you could even make a living at it. And when I started doing it, it was just kind of a 
not really a hobby. I wanted, I wanted to go out there and I wanted to do well, but I didn't know if I could make a living at it because it was hard to make a living just bass fishing back in those days. But my timing was perfect because I started in 1980. And in 1984, I won my first national event. And that was about the time that the sport was really growing. They started to televise the sport. It was on TV. More sponsors started to become involved to where you could get sponsorship deals and endorsements. And you could go out and uh, you were getting paid to do appearances, to do seminars and sports shows and that. So you could legitimately make a living. And so that was just kind of the turning point for me. You were one of the first people to use flipping and pitching. How did you learn that? Did you make it up or did you learn it from someone? I actually read about it in Bassmaster. A gentleman by the name of D. Thomas came out from California and won a tournament on Bull Shoals Lake with the technique. And I just kind of thought it might apply to a lot of my fishing because I like to fish for big fish. I like to fish in heavy cover. I knew that's where they lived. And I knew at that particular time, I loved to fish a spinnerbait, but you couldn't get it in some places without getting it hung up. And a jig, you could get in and out of those places. And by using the technique of clipping and pitching, you were a lot more accurate putting it in those hard to get places. And then when you'd get a bite, you had the right equipment to get the fish back out. And I also realized that if I was going to be a tournament angler, it was about catching five big fish if you wanted to win, not about catching 20 or 30 fish. So I wanted to target those big fish and a jig really appeals to big fish and the flipping and pitching technique allows you to get to the areas where the big fish live. I was reading about in a magazine that some dude, he took like a two-aught wide gap hook, just a plain one, and he like super glued skirt material to it and puts a chunk trailer on it. He uses it for finesse fishing to catch bigger fish than you would with a drop shot since it is like a bigger profile. Yeah, a lot of times by going to a bigger profile, it'll appeal to those bigger fish because they obviously don't want to expend a lot of energy for a small meal. So they're going to, you know, intentionally target the bigger meals. And so that makes total sense. You know, a lot of times, even if you drop shot in a worm, if you move up in size on a worm, just because it's finesse presentation, the fact that you moved up to a bigger size will appeal to the bigger fish in a school. So all that is, you know, something you experiment with as you go along. So how do you think you were so successful as a professional angler? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, that's kind of a hard question to answer, but I think the simplest way to answer it is hard work. You know, how are you successful at anything? How are you successful at your podcast? You study and you work hard at it. So fishing's no different. I put in every free moment I had on the water trying to learn more about the fish, paying a lot of attention to every cast I made, really being focused. I think that was a huge part because I didn't want to miss any strikes. When I'd finally get a bite, I wanted to put it in the boat. I also wanted to be aware of everything around me. You know, are there blue herons over there that might tell me there's some shad in that area that maybe I should go over there and fish for bath? Are there seagulls diving on schooling fish somewhere? What direction's the wind coming from? I'd analyze everything I could and just, you know, try to learn. That's the bottom line, hard work and learning and never, ever think you know it all. I think some of the best advice you can give a tournament angler is 
when you win a tournament, just remember you're only as good as your next event. So you put that event behind you, you're starting all over, and you need to be just as hungry for the next event. Did you just remember it or did you write the information down? I wrote it down. I kept extensive notes after every tournament. You know, what size line I was using, what the watercolor was, obviously the time of year the tournament took place. Anything I could think of that might help me the next time I went to that particular lake, I was writing it all down. And then I'd also, any article I found about that tournament, whether it was in Bassmaster or whatever, I would clip it out. I would attach it to that. So I always had me a file on each lake whether I was going to a lake on the East Coast or the West Coast or whatever, if I'd been there before, I could just pull that file out. Back then when I first started, all we had was paper maps. So I'd always mark the maps and, you know, just keep all that stuff because over the years, it's hard to remember all those fine details and those fine details, a lot of times will unlock the secret to help you catch more fish. You've designed multiple baits for striking, I know. Can you walk us through the process of designing those? Yeah, each bait's a, a little bit different, Mike. Uh, I know when I designed the flipping tube, I had a, an idea immediately what I wanted. I wanted it with a solid head to where the hook wouldn't slide down, and I wanted it at least a half inch longer so that you could put a big flipping hook in it, where tubes had been designed for finesse fishing with jig heads. Uh-huh. And that made it difficult. So it was easy for me to design that bait. Uh, some of the jigs took more time because it's all about balance, the hook angles and weed guard angles and head design. And I know the structure jig, which is probably the most popular jig on the market right now, that took us about a year to design to where we got it just exactly the way we wanted it. Uh, so some baits come together real fast. Some take more time. The DB crawl plastic trawl that we designed was a nightmare. It took forever to get the action I wanted. It come down to how much salt was in the plastic because that determined how soft it was in the action. So we had to do a lot of playing around with that in order to get it to do what I wanted. But I always made my mind up. I wasn't going to let a bait ever get on the market with my name on it until it was right. And I totally believed in it. I looked in my straight king catalog and I never found the DB Cross. It's still for sale. You bet. The DB Cross are still in there. They're still for sale. I'll have to look again. It looks like you fished 319 Bassmaster tournaments, 197 times you've won money, and you have 80 top 10 finishes and 17 first place finishes. Do you have any favorite memories from fishing tournaments? Oh, gosh, you know, there's a lot of really good memories, and there's some that you'd like to have a do-over in. Obviously, that's part of tournament fishing, but the classic finally winning it was a great memory because I'd had seconds and thirds and, you know, fourths and fifths and about every finish I could in the top ten, but winning, and it started to be one of those deals where you were wondering if it would ever happen whether you'd ever get it right. So that was a great memory when it came together. The fact that I'd flown my mother and aunt in for that event, and my son was also a contestant in that event, that made it even more remarkable. So that that was a good memory. Uh, Another good memory was when my son won his first Bassmasters tournament. That was very, very exciting. Anytime you fish at that level and you're successful, those are all good memories and you cherish every one of them.
You won the Bassmaster Classic, which is like the winning the Super Bowl in fishing. Can you describe the whole experience fishing the tournament and the weigh-in and stuff like that? It was one of them deals where everything had to go perfect. I just made some really good choices that particular event on the water I was going to fish. I executed real good. I was catching the fish out of real, real heavy cover, flipping and pitching. And so I knew going in that I wasn't going to land 100% of them. Some of them were going to probably get tangled up and get away before I could get to them. But I just need to keep my focus and, you know, not let that get me upset. Just keep grinding away. And and then the, I think it was the second day of the event, I ended up catching like a 7-pound, 12-ounce bass or something like that that was just a turning point and i knew when i caught that fish i was going to have a really good chance to win the tournament and the way it worked out i think i won by right at 10 pounds so it wasn't one of those deals where you were sitting there waiting for the scale to settle i pretty well knew when i come in at that end of the day that i'd probably finally won the bass wrestlers classic so were you like fishing a jig in that tournament that's a great question. Back then, we had a pre-practice period for the Classic that was like 30 days ahead of time. And when I went there to pre-practice, I was getting all these bites and actually found these fish on a jig. And when we come back for the actual tournament, I fished down through the bank that I had my most bites, and I wasn't getting any bites. And I thought, well, did they move or what? And then I got to thinking, well, maybe I need to try something different. So that's when I I'd started to have a little success flipping a tube. And so I thought, well, I'm going to try a tube. And the first tree that I came to, I immediately had a bite on the tube. And when I'm practicing, I don't jerk on any fish. I just shake them off so that I'm going to have an opportunity to catch them in the tournament. So I got that fish to actually drop the tube. And I turned right around and went back to a tree that I'd already flipped with a jig and hadn't had a bite. And the first flip in there with the tube, I got a bite. And that just told me that the fish were still there. They were just wanting a tube rather than a jig. And probably because earlier they'd been feeding on crawfish. And when I got there, there was a huge school of shad that had moved in on that flat. And they'd probably switched to feeding on shad. And the tube probably did a better job of imitating the shad than what the jig did. That would seem really hard if the practice period is 30 days prior to the tournament, especially if it's an early spring tournament. You never know when those fish could be transitioning or cruising or something like that. You're absolutely right. Springtime, you got a lot of fish moving. In the fall, you have a lot of fish moving. But the Classic used to be a summertime event. It would be, you know, basically around the 1st of August. And summertime fish, for the most part, are a lot more stable. They know where they're going to be. They're either going to be deep or they're going to be shallow, depending on oxygen levels and water clarity and things like that. So once you figure them out, a lot of times they'd stay in the same area for several weeks. And it just happened that those fish actually stayed in that particular zone of the lake. I think first, second, and third actually come out about a one-mile area on that lake, and all three places came very, very shallow where in previous years uh, on that particular lake when we had a classic, the fish were caught deep. So it had everything to do with oxygen levels and the type of summer we had. But you're, you're very, very right in assuming that the season has everything to do with how long fish will stay in an area. Pretty smart that you don't hook them when you're practicing since 
once a fish eat it that's and they that, get pulled into the boat, they just say, nope, I'm not eating this. Let me see it again. That's a mistake that a lot of anglers make. They want to look at too many fish in practice, and they even want to get too many bites in practice, and I don't think that's necessary. You get into an area, you get one or two bites, try not to catch those fish, especially if you feel they were good quality fish. And go try to find another area where there's some fish living. You can find out how many fish are actually there come tournament time. But the time to find that out is not in practice. Yeah. Is there any way to measure the pH level in water? Yeah, there are. there's pH meters where you can actually measure what's going on with the pH. But I, th I don't do that. I think common sense tells you a lot. The only time you really got to worry about bad pH is, you know, the fall turnover. And in the heat of the summer, once in a while, you have that situation. But when you don't have any wind and you're in the back of a creek in the summertime and the water's in the 90s, you might have to worry about something like that. But you get out to where the winds hit and the main lake banks, those are the areas that you want to fish that time of the year. So a lot of worrying about pH is common sense. Always live vegetation is a lot better area to fish than dying dead vegetation. But I have caught them on some nasty dead vegetation too. If it was main lake, the wind was making sure there was plenty of oxygen in the water. So it's all cover, but you just got to weigh which type of cover is going to be best. And if you're fishing vegetation, the greener, the more lush the vegetation, the better it's going to be. So you were talking about using common sense to kind of get a good guess on the pH level. What do you do to do that? It's really just time of year. You know, where should the fish be? Should they be main lake? Should they be back in a creek? Should they be in a pocket or whatever? And then it's all about the conditions. If the conditions are, you know, really nasty out as far as water temperature, calm, no wind, then it might be a a factor to worry about pH and things like that. But I think you can spend too much time worrying about those type of things when you should be out there just covering water, you know, thinking about where the fish should be. What are they doing? Are they spawning? Are they deep? Is it a windy day out? Do I need to get to the windy banks? Is it a winter day? Do I need to be on the calm banks, the north banks, the south bank? All those things are a lot more important to me than pH. You know, if I'd get trapped back in the creek somewhere with no wind in the middle of the summertime, then I might worry about whether it's dead water, had poor oxygen, poor pH, things like that. But other than that, I mean, obviously I don't even own a pH meter, so that tells you how much I worry about it. Whatever baits do you like to fish with besides a jig? Really, I enjoy fishing all baits. I kind of look at it, my favorite bait's the one they're biting. But as far as the enjoyment on how working a bait is, I love fishing a jig because I know the size bites it'll get. I think it's a very relaxing way to fish versus, you know, some of the baits that you really got to work hard, like throwing big crankbaits and that. They can work you pretty hard. You know, I carry a lot of different tackle boxes and a lot of different uh, options for really whatever conditions I run into. So I just kind of look at it like that. Uh, one of my favorite baits here lately to throw is the striking thunder cricket. I've just been catching a ton of fish on it the last couple of years since we came out with it. So that's kind of the one-two punch, the, the jig and the thunder cricket right now. Huh. I tried fishing a bladed jig, but it never really worked out for me. Well, it's just time on the water once again. It's a great, great bait. You'll catch a lot of fish on it. 
just pretend you're fishing a spinner bait and fish it just like that. Kind of experiment with the speed. Sometimes you need to really slow it down just so you can still feel it vibrating. There's other times they want it a little bit faster. When you come by a piece of cover, stop it, let it fall a foot or so and start it again. A lot of times that'll trigger the bite, but it's a great bait and it's a great big fish bait. And that's what I like about it. So what are you throwing on the end of that? Like a Strike King Rage Swimmer or a Rage Grub or something? Great question. What I like to put on the back of it more than anything else is the Rage Menace. That's a perfect size for the back of it. You can have it look like a crawdad depending on what color, or it can look like a shad. And it's, it's compact. It doesn't keep it from getting down to the depth you want it to get. So I can do a lot of things with that. We also have another trailer called the Rage Blade. I want to make it totally look like a shad. I'll go with the Rage Blade trailer. So you got a lot of different covers. Even the, the Rage Bug itself can be a great, great trailer behind it. So you just got to, you know, analyze how big a bait do you want? How big a trailer determines the profile of the bait? How shallow do you want it to be or how deep do you want it to be? The deeper you want your uh, Thunder Cricket to go, the smaller trailer you want on it. The shallower you want it, the bigger trailer you put on it because that'll help keep it up. So You were talking about the Rage Bug. Is that the one that they say is designed for punching? It's a great punching bait, but we got a bait out now that we just came out with called the Punch Bug. It's got a kind of a rib type body, which yeah, helps those ones, so yeah. with two crawls on the back of it that are in line, and it helps it slide down through the matted hydrilla and that a lot better. What was your reaction when you found out you were going to be on the Wheaties box? Well, that was a pretty cool deal. You know, a, a tremendous honor. Uh, not many people have had that privilege over the years, and for fishermen to end up there, it was a neat deal. I was real excited when it happened, but to this day, it still gets brought up by a lot of people, and it has a far-reaching effect, without a doubt. And I just thought it was a really good deal for the sport of bass fishing to see an angler on the box. Yeah. I told you how Rob Cooksey put me in contact with you. He has a signed one, a signed Wheaties box. Cereal. Yep. He's also from Seward. What was it like to be on the David Letterman show? That was really cool. You know, going to New York is quite an experience in itself, but man, they treat you like a king when you're there. And uh, it was a, it was nerve wracking because you knew the amount of people that would be watching and you're kind of representing the whole fishing industry. So it was once again, one of those opportunities that uh, was great, but it still carried a lot of weight with it. And, uh, you just knew that you wanted to try to make a good impression for the sport itself. So it was cool. The first time was a, was a little apprehensive, but then they asked me to come back for the second time. So being on Dave Letterman twice was an awesome experience. Did you teach him how to cast? No, David is actually a fisherman. He does a lot of fly fishing and does some fishing. So he knew how to cast. And obviously he wasn't going to embarrass himself on TV and try casting. So uh, that did not happen. <laughs> did he get to meet any upper people while you were on the show? Yeah, on uh, the Letterman show, Ozzy Osbourne was there during one of the shows that I did. Uh, I actually had to show him how to cast. We did a deal. 
And uh, Ted Dawson was one of the guys there. There was a uh, there was several different other guests. That sounds like fun. It was fun. It was fun, but it was nerve wracking. So, how did you become so proficient fishing a jig? I think time on the water. You know, it was one of them baits that I just fell in love with, and I fell in love with the size fish could catch. And my goal in tournament fishing was to, you know, make enough money to where I'd never have to quit tournament fishing. And I knew in order to do that, I was going to have to develop some name recognition. And the only way you do that is by winning. And I felt the jig gave me the best opportunity to win. So I spent a lot of hours on the water fishing a jig, experimenting with a jig, trying different retrieves, different colors, different weights, speed of fall, all the little things, you know, even size line, what I thought was best for different situations. I designed a lot of rods over the years just for flipping and pitching and so that I would hook and land more fish. So it was a multitude of things. But the bottom line was I spent a lot of time fishing it. And there's a lot of people won't fish a jig because they claim they can't get any bites. Well, the reason they're not getting any bites is they got discouraged and laid it down and tried something else, went back to their favorite spinner bait or whatever. You want to get good with the jig? tie a jig on and go out there and don't take anything else and just stick with it and you'll fall in love with it eventually. What would you say your favorite combination like with color, hook size, weight, line test? If I had one jig to fish, it would probably be a half ounce. I really like that weight. If I could only pick one, obviously I'd hate to be limited to one weight jig. Size hook, I like a four-aught or a five-aught. Usually when I go to a half ounce, I want the five-aught hook in it. Color-wise, you know, I'd hate to be limited to one color. I guess if I was, it would probably be, it's either going to be green pumpkin or it's going to be black and blue. You know, if the water's a little dirty, I like black and blue. If it's clear, I like green pumpkin. we got a lot of different colors that kind of are takeoffs from each of those, but you could get by fine with those two color jigs. For trailers, do you use like a, do you use mainly a chunk trailer or do you use a cross-style bait? We've got the Rage Chunk trailer, which I use almost exclusively behind it. It's a very, very simple little trailer. It makes the bait fairly compact. I trim the skirt back, put that little Rage Chunk on there, and it's just an easy bait to get in and out of cover. I don't use the chunk style trailers like I used to years ago. I just don't think you need them. I'm just uh, real happy with that, that one particular trailer. About 90% of my fishing is with that trailer. The only time I change is if I'm in an area where there's a lot, a lot of big fish. And for some reason, I know that they're feeding on big crawfish. I see them spitting up big crawfish in my live well or whatever. Then a lot of times I will put the rage crawl, uh, the whole body crawl behind it to make a little longer bait. Or I'll take and use something like a punch bug or uh, rage lobster. There's a great choice. And that's another thing. It'll also slow the speed of the fall of the bait down if you want to slow it down and yet still give you that big profile. So we, we've got, you know, so many different trailer plastics at Strike King. You can really mix it up. The Menace can be a good trailer behind a jig when you're punching vegetation because it's a small profile. So some of it has to do with water temperature, how much action I want in it and how much I don't. The colder the water, the slower I want the action. So, But if I had one to choose, it would be that rage chunk. 
Do you have any tips for catching highly pressured fish at all? Well, just try to pay attention to where everybody's fishing and go somewhere else if you possibly can or be a lot more thorough than they are on the same type of water. Uh, maybe use a different type of bait where they're maybe going too fast down a bank. You might need to make 10, 15 casts at a target to get the fish aggravated to bite. But uh, a lot of times I look for those places that people are ignoring. You know, everybody knows that that point's going to be a good place. That boat dock's going to be a good place. Well, that bare bank that everybody drives by, that might be where I want to stop and really try to find something different on that bank. Mm -hmm. I recently interviewed someone named Trevor McKinney. He just fished his first year in the Opens, and he did good in college. Do you have any advice for him if he wants to make it to be elite? Oh, boy. You know, just fish as many tournaments as he possibly can and try to learn and get as much knowledge as you can. I mean, there's so many ways you can learn nowadays that are so much easier than when I was growing up. Back then, there was a few seminars you could go to. You could read a few articles in magazines. But now with social media, you can really kind of master a shortcut to the sport, so to speak. But it's still there's time on the water. The more he fishes, the more events he fishes from. He should try to learn from each one, not get discouraged. Just work hard at it. And if you're not willing to work hard at bass fishing, you're never going to become a successful tournament fishing. For the people out there that think it's an easy way to make a living, they're not going to be very successful. The people that are very competitive, very hungry to do well, they can be very, very successful. But, you know, for somebody wanting to do it full time, you've got to keep in mind that part of the sport is fishing and part of the sport is promoting fishing. So you've got to be willing to work with the media. You've got to be willing to work with sponsors. You've got to be willing to give back. And You know, some guys just don't want to do that. They just want to go out and fish and have a good time. Those are the guys that are never going to be successful. Do you have any favorite fishing stories or experiences? Do I have any favorite fishing stories? Oh, boy. Uh, one of my favorite days on the water actually took place on Lake Bacharach in uh, Mexico. I ended up catching 10 fish that weighed 96 pounds that day after not having caught anything the day before. Finally figured them out on that day, and my best five weighed 52 pounds, 12 ounces. So that's a day that I'll never forget. The biggest one that day weighed 12-12. A day like that, you know, is pretty special. This doesn't happen very often, but probably my favorite memory is the biggest bass I ever caught, and I caught it here on Lake Amstead. I was actually practicing for a tournament, and it was like a week before the tournament, and I was out in open water. I thought, man, I probably shouldn't jerk on this fish, but I'm going to jerk on it. It was a deep water jig bite. It ended up weighing over 15 pounds, so that was a pretty remarkable fish, and I certainly didn't regret jerking on it because it was a, it was a memory I'll never forget. Yeah, that's quite the fish. Yeah, it was quite the fish. A beautiful fish, never had a blemish on it, was in great health, and weighted on a couple different scales and let it go right there. And marched it swim back down to the exact spot I caught it on, and I never saw it again. I couldn't get it to bite again during the tournament. So, but it's the way it goes. That's just one more reason at times you don't jerk on them in practice. In a tournament, what was the biggest total weight you got? The biggest total weight I ever weighed in a tournament I wanted was 28 pounds something. Wow. And at that particular time, that was the five fish record for bass. And it got broke after that, obviously. And 
28 is still a lot for five bass. Yeah, that was on Sam Rayburn. I want to say that was in the early 90s when I did that. Do you have any advice for me as a young fisherman? Well, obviously, you really enjoy it. You got a lot of enthusiasm, and you're doing a lot of the right things by doing what you're doing right now. So you're heading in the right direction there. And you ask a lot of really good questions. And I think this being inquisitive and trying to get better on the learning curve of things can really separate you from everybody else. And so it, if it is something you're aspiring to do, to fish full-time for a living and be a tournament pro someday, you're really off to a good start because on the business end of things, you're getting your act together at an early age. And as far as the fishing end of things, I don't know how good you are. I've never fished with you. I don't know whether you fish a lot or just now and then, but if you want to get better on the water, you got to spend time on the water and always try to fish with people that are better than you because you'll learn from them. If you're fishing with somebody that you can go out there and out fish all the time, you're probably not going to learn a whole lot from them. It takes time. It takes dedication. It's just like any other occupation. The harder you work, the more time you put in, the better you'll get at it. And even at that, you're going to have days you're going to get totally discouraged. To this day, I still have days I go out there and I don't catch them. Uh, but I know maybe the next day I will, so I don't give up. I try to learn from those days and do something different the next time. But uh, it's, it's a very interesting sport, but it's a sport you can do your whole life. I'm 72 years old, and I'm still able to do it. A lot of sports that you get involved in. You know, I played high school sports and football, basketball tracks. Some of them, you're pretty limited in how long you can do them. A sport like fishing, you can do no matter how old you get. So it's pretty unique, and you can have a long career if you get into tournament fishing. Yeah. Time for some rapid-fire questions. We should be quick. Braid, or, braid, mono, or fluorocarbon? Fluorocarbon. What's your favorite knot? Palomar knot. I use it for everything. It's the deal. Yeah. Favorite fish to eat? Ah, favorite fish to eat. Walleye. Favorite lake to fish? Probably Lake Amistad. Tubes or jigs? Jigs. Gift bags or wrapping paper? Gift bag. Biggest fish you ever caught? It was over 15 pounds. All right, time for a last question. If you could go anywhere in the world, what would your dream catch be? Oh, boy. I guess I can't go anywhere in the world right now, and I choose to stay here and fish. So that pretty well answers that question. I just love the way this lake fishes, and it's got the big fish in it. And, a dream catch for me would be catching another 15-pound largemouth out of, out of Lake Amistad. But I do enjoy going to, uh, you know, other lakes. I fished a lot of the Mexico lakes with Ron Speed Adventures. And I love going to Lake Picachos to catch, you know, 100 bass a day. I love going to El Salto to, you know, hopefully catch a couple of 10-pounders on a trip. So uh, I'm real fortunate that I get to go to a lot of good places. But if you nail me to one, It'd be right here where I live, and that's why I live here. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me on. I enjoyed it. You really do a good job. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Catching Knowledge. I hope you enjoyed learning from Denny Brower as much as I did. Thank you to Mr. Rob Cooksey for connecting me with Denny. 
And of course, thank you to Denny Brower for taking some time to talk with me. It was a huge honor. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe so you can easily listen to more episodes. Also, would you consider leaving a rating or review? I would really appreciate it. That's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening to Catching Knowledge.